Kofi Baker, we're doing a cream faith tour in end of September. We're going to do California, Arizona, and somewhere else. But Is I got Colorado. Colorado. But it's you Colorado. guys just shut up because we're, we're going. <laughs> and this is Scott Tipping, by the way. Hello, Still Scott. someone else yeah I'm so I'm gonna guy. be guys in the back of the truck and we're heading out are we putting the gear in the back also no okay he's staying here we're just so if you have gear we can, if you have gear we can rent he'll no, let we'll, us out of the we'll back fly, of the truck we'll fly the gear and yeah. we're going to truck hello everyone i am matthew thomas this is super cool radio and thank you guys so much for tuning in i have an amazing guest joining me at this time and i'm very excited to chat with him he's an incredible drummer and part of the music of cream cream faith and Kofi Baker's psychedelic trip. Please welcome the son of Ginger Baker, Kofi Baker. Wow. Hello. Um, yes, I have several names to my band. Kofi Baker's Cream Experience, psychedelic, Kofi Baker's Psychedelic Trip, The Music of Cream, Cream Faith. Because every time I make a band and an agent signs me, they say, oh, well, you can't have another band. You can only have the one band, which is they're promoting. So you have to cut all your other bands so I cut all my other bands and then they drop the ball on me and I have to go back to another name back to the old name and then have to get more promo so it's a bit of a mess when you're in the music business my advice to you is don't let a manager or an agent tell you what to do that is good advice that's good, that good advice they do tell you what to do I'll give you the story behind the music of cream yeah go for it yeah so, um, I had a band called Kofi Baker's Cream Experience, which was my own band playing music Cream and Blind Faith and, you know, other stuff as well that I liked. And a, um, a manager came up to me, a guy phone, called me up on the phone, said, I'm in Australia and I'd love you to do a tour of Australia. And I'm like, I've never been to Australia. Sounds like a great place to go. So he goes, yeah, I'm going to put this thing together. I'm going to call it Music Cream. And I'm like, I've got my band, the Kofi Baker Cream Experience. He goes, yeah, I know. That's how I found you. He goes, but you can't use that anymore because we're gonna, I'm going to put you in the musical cream. And so cut your Kofi Baker Cream Experience out because it will cause problems with booking the musical cream. Because what these agents want to do is they want to have full control. They don't want to see you playing a club or a lower end club using the same name because it can detract from the draw to that club. So if you're playing a big club, say like a coach house or like, a, you know, a five, maybe a 5,000 seat or even a 1,000 seat club, there's a rule of a, uh, six months or a, um, 100 miles away rule that you can. Yeah, I've heard of that one, yeah. So, you know, so you can't really use the same name and all that kind of stuff. So this manager guy goes, yes, musical cream. And he, he owned the entity. He made up the musical cream. So 
we did the tours. It was all great. He paid us. Um, I had an agency that I was working with. He said, you can't work with that agency anymore because I have another agency. So I had to fire my agency. So now as a musician, you're now employed by someone. So you know now how to do as you're told. You're no longer in control of where you play, what music you play. They tell you what music you're going to play, what to look like, what you're going to do. And I ended up playing Cocaine and Layla Clatton songs, which has nothing to do with my dad's legacy. Yeah. My dad's legacy was Cream and Blind Faith. So, you know, they like, well, we need to put some Clatton songs in there because people know Cocaine and Layla, right? You know, most younger yeah. people know Clatton. Yeah, no, I'm familiar with them, yeah. Right. And they know that more than they, they know, you know, Cream and Blind Faith the younger generation. So I ended up playing Cocaine and Layla, which is all well and good, except it's not my dad's legacy and I didn't want to do it. But I was being paid and I had, at this point, I couldn't say no because if I said no, I didn't have a band anymore because they made me squash my band. I didn't have an agency anymore because they made me squash my agency. So I had nothing. I was now in con control by an entity. And the band had Jack Bruce's son in it, which is Malcolm Bruce. I didn't know that. Yeah, so uh, Jack Bruce had a son. He actually had two sons, and one died of an overdose of drugs. And his other son uh, plays bass and sings and plays guitar and keyboards, a very talented multi-musician player. So he brought him into the band, so, and then he brought Will Johns into the band, who was Eric Clapton's nephew by marriage. Not blood, but by marriage. And I so, didn't know that part either. Yeah, so what happens is Malcolm says, look, you know what, I'm tired of this. Show me the books. Show me where the money's going because we're, we're doing these tours that are grossing $400,000 and we're getting paid like 10 grand. And we're like, well, that's, that seems like there's a lot of money going out. Okay, I know buses, yeah. the bus costs like a grand a day. Those tour buses cost $1,000 a day and you have to have a driver to tour with. So all well and good, but that was a lot of money going out. So Malcolm Jack Bruce's son goes, I want to see the books. And of course, the manager turns around and goes, well, you're fired. So fires Jack Bruce's son from the band. So now it's just me and Will. And I'm like, Malcolm's my buddy. I don't want to do this to my buddy, Malcolm. I want to have it. And he goes, well, do you want to get paid? You've got to do this tour. So I agreed to do this one last tour for this guy, right? Because I wanted to still work with Malcolm and stuff and do other stuff. I agreed to do this one last tour. Of course, this tour was 2020. Right. And <laughs> yeah. um, so I, I flew to, to London. I did my dad's memorial, which was with Eric Clapton, Roger Waters, Ronnie Wood, um, Stevie Winwood. I mean, it was like, it was a lot of people, the good yeah. people. So I did that. And then I flew to New York where we did the Howard Stern show. And wow. uh, we did the Howard Stern show and that was all great. So, hang so let's look at the timeline. So February of 2020, I'm in London. I flew into London on a plane, airports, London, then flew to the center of New York in February of 2020. And the pandemic was really taking off. So I was in the middle of all this stuff. So then after that, went to get on the tour bus. So we get on the tour bus and we start our tour in Chicago and we head down. I think we go across and we're heading down uh, California. We go across and we're heading down California. So we're like a week ahead of the pandemic closing everything down in America. So a week behind us, everything's closing down and it's catching up on us. I get sick, right? Because I've been in all these places and I'm like, I don't like tested because if I test COVID, 
I'm not going to be able to play anymore. Yeah. The tour's over. I'm, like, I'm not going to get tested. I'm just going to ride this out. Of course, it caught up with us two weeks into a three-month tour, right? So two weeks into a three-month tour, the pandemic shuts us down. We're in a tour bus in California. So the tour bus is $1,000 a day. So they have to drive the tour bus back to Nashville, where the buses companies mostly are. So that's three days of driving because they can only drive 500 miles a day, the drivers. Yeah, because they have the log, yeah. Right. So it takes us three days of $1,000 a day just to get the bus back. So this tour cost the manager all his money, right? So because he had to, when you have a tour, you have to put the money out for the advertising. You have to rent the buses, use a lot of the deposits from the gigs, but it costs a lot of money. So, so I'm like, I did your tour. Well, you didn't because you already got shut down. So he made me do another tour, the last tour I did, which was. When, was that, when did that start? When was the last? The- well, that was 20. It, I mean, it, we closed down for like a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all the tour. Was that last year then? Yeah, I think it was last okay. year. Yeah. Okay. Because the tour company, all the buses went out of business. A lot of things went no. out of business. Venues, buses, right. yeah. anything on entertainment, pretty much. Right. People think it was just the musicians, but it no. was the whole industry went down. Oh, yeah. And it was like, so, um, yeah, so I had to do one more tour to finish my contractual obligation to this guy. Um, and I did that. And so, again, do not give up control. If you're a musician, you're better off having to control yourself. Don't take all this extra money because it will end up, you won't have control of your music. And as a musician, your music is your thing. To me, it's more important to play the music I love than to get paid more money. I mean, if Eric Clapton pulled me up, which she could do, and say, hey, I need a drummer for a gig, I would be okay working with Eric for maybe a few months, but I couldn't do his gig for a long period of time because I'm, you know, Eric Clapton's music's great, but it's very simple. And for a drummer, you know, he's playing big venues. And the bigger the venue you play as a drummer, the less you can play because it doesn't translate the air, the moving of the air. If I play a fill on my drums, like a really fast fill, blah, down it in a big thousand, two thousand seater, it sounds like, it, just, it doesn't translate. So as a drummer, as a guitar player, all you guitar players and bass players, ignore this. You can do whatever you want. But as a drummer, the bigger the venue you play, the simpler you have to play because you have to, it doesn't translate to big places. That's why I like playing small clubs because I'd rather like, I don't know if you know who Steve Marriott is, Humble Pie. Uh, I've heard the name, but not very familiar. Okay, well, you're a young guy. So for all you old people out there, you'll know a band called Humble Pie, who Rod Stewart was in. Okay, I'm familiar. Yes, yes. yes. So it was uh, Rod Stewart um, was in the band, I think, either before or after Steve Marriott. I think it was after Steve Marriott left, and it became the Small Faces. You heard of Small Faces? I have not, no. You're too young for this stuff. Okay, I don't know what your demographic is, but if you're young, you probably won't know who these people are. But anyway, I worked with a guy called Steve Marriott, who was a pretty big name, and he used to play smaller clubs two or three nights in a row rather than play a big club. Because when you're playing a small club, it's more intimate with the people. Um, you get more feedback. It's just more fun. And as a drummer, you can play how you want. So, um, so that's why I learned that from. That's interesting. I didn't really know that about drumming or like, about the sound of the drums at like bigger, bigger gigs and stuff like that. I was 
I didn't know that, honestly. Okay, well, next time you go to a big gig, yeah. listen to the drums, and then you go to a small club and listen to the drums. I mostly go to a lot of small club shows. Okay. Uh, Depending on the drama, obviously. Yeah, oh yeah, no, definitely, but I'm a, I, I have a few, like I'm going to like an amphitheater in Tinley Park coming up soon, so okay. I'm going to... I'm going to pay attention to that now. Yeah, pay attention. You'll see the drummer will be playing very strict notes and very simple fills. If, if you see him doing any complicated fills, you'll see it, but you won't hear it. Okay. So um, that's, that's the drawback of being a drummer. Guitar player, it's a trebly instrument. It, it carries. Okay. Bass is a little bit harder to play fast on, but it can still translate. But drums are the hardest because snare drums and everything, and they gate you too. You know what gating is? No, I'm not, no, I'm not familiar. Okay. So when you play a drum, it rings. So what they do is they gate it so you don't get the ring, which is all well and good unless you're playing some tiny little ghost notes, they call them, when you're playing little fluffs and stuff. That gets cut out. So depending on the level they gate you, it's like they're gating all the noise out, but they're also taking the low levels out. So you're really getting to just the big hits. Okay. They did that to my dad, and my dad's a jazz drummer. Right? And yes. I've seen some videos of my dad where you can only hear half of what he's playing because they've gated him so hard that you, some, all the little stuff you can't hear. And that's because a lot of drummers today, you know, it's very strict, you know, especially heavy metal drumming. Yes, definitely. It's very precise, but, 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 but there's no little notes in there. So they can gate you. And that's how they get a cleaner sound so they don't get all the ring from the other tom or any of that other stuff in there. Okay. I. I didn't know that with the, like a lot. I'm not like super familiar with drums anyway, okay. but um, I would. I didn't know that with um, especially with you know live. I, do they do it in the studio too, or is that just live? Oh, that's just live. In okay. the studio, they they don't normally gate you because, and they do a little bit, but um, you you got more control over the sound in the studio. You know, okay. um, live you got like monitors, you got all the yeah. mics or the guitar, and you want to you know in a studio you're normally separated. You know, so um, unless you're like, if I'm playing live right now in a room, I have the overheads up there, which catch the overheads, the bass and the guitar bleed onto my overheads. So when I go to mix the drums, the bass and guitar will be there on my drum tracks. So that's why in studios, they have you in a separate box. So, that, you know, the drums, all you're getting through the drum mics are the drums. So live, you've got to think you're, you're, all of that noise is going into the microphones. So that's why they like gating you because it stops all that noise coming in. Learn, learn a lot of stuff here for me. A lot, a lot of new stuff now. Okay, so about drumming, I've I've seen some sound guys, but I've never really talked to them. But I, I've heard and uh, seen like sound guys with the drum shields. Right. Uh, do they actually do anything, or like are they better? Like I'm curious what you're again. Is. That's for two things. It's to stop the drum sound getting onto the vocal mics and the vocal mics, the vocal sound, the bass and guitar getting onto the drums. Most of the time, they put them in front of the drums because they don't want to hear all the drums. They want to keep the drums, you know, especially if you're playing with a heavy, loud drummer, they want to keep that volume down and they want to keep that volume off the vocal mics and all the other stuff. So that's what they're for. You sometimes see them around guitars and basses, and again, that's to stop the sound getting onto the drum mics. So when you're playing a big gig, your drums are set up and they put the bass amp and the guitar amp in front of the drums so that it's not bleeding onto the drum mics. Now, if you look at my dad and you look at Cream, you look at all those old bands, the bass amp and guitar amp was behind the drums. Reason being because you don't have very good monitors back then, if any. So you can't hear anything that's in front of you. I'm the same way. When I play gigs, I tell them to put the bass and the guitar amp behind the drums 
because I want to hear the sound from the amps. I don't want to hear the sound from the mic going into the board, coming back into my monitor, because it's not the same. It sounds all EQ'd, and, it's, and then you've got to get your levels. So I like to work the same way Cream worked. I have no drum riser, because when you put the drums on a drum riser, you take the drums out. For a start, I can't see the musician so much because they're behind my cymbals, and I can't hear them so much because I'm out of the whole hearing thing. So you're relying on the monitor completely. So when I play my Cream Faith and my whatever shows I play that's to do with Cream, you'll find I have no drum riser. I'll be set up on the floor like Cream did it, and I'll have the basic guitar amps behind me, and I tell the sound man, deal with it. Because, you know, it's just a better sound, you know. Even with kick drum, a lot of drummers will have their kick drum and stuff in a monitor, which is all good, but you're getting the kick drum sound that they're putting out front most of the time, and it's all EQ'd, and it doesn't sound like your kick drum naturally. So sometimes on smaller gigs when I have control, I put a microphone in my kick drums, and I put it in a monitor, and it's just kick drum to the speaker. So it's purely the sound I'm getting for the kick drum. There's no EQ or anything. So I like that better. No, that's really cool. Like I'm, I don't really, I don't see any bands like have that set up for that. You know, especially putting the amps behind the stuff. But you are right; you get the exact sound of what it's going to sound like, though. Right. There's no, you know, going for the soundboard or the monitor or anything like that. It's exactly what it's going to be like. I think that is cool. Like I, I haven't unfortunately not seen you live yet, but I, I really, I really want to at some point. Well, I hope hopefully. so. I, yeah, <laughs> I'm here with you right now, which is awesome. Right. But I definitely got to see you live. Definitely. Well, that's live is the best time to. To see us, because otherwise you can't see us. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, I'm curious for you. Uh, so, you, um, so the majority of you play mostly like Cream and Blind Faith. Uh, I do now. Do yes, currently. Right. Um, so I'm I'm curious. Do you have a favorite uh, Cream song and Blind Faith song to perform live? <sighs> well, or you pick a few. Yeah, I mean they're all so much fun to play. I prefer the ones where there's a lot of improvisation. So, which is a lot of the Cream songs. And a lot of the Blind Faith songs, actually. So Do What You Like is my favorite Blind Faith song because it's basically uh, a head, you know, guitar solo, a head bass solo, a head drum solo. So I like that song and it's, it's great fun to play. But I, I mean, I like all of the songs. I mean, Presence of the Lord is a Blind Faith song. And that's a very song I like to play. I also like to play it because I actually, when I was a kid, I found some tapes in my attic and a tape machine. And a microphone. And of course, what you do at age six or seven, you, you bring the microphone, you start taping stuff on the tapes. And at one point, I was playing the tape and Prince of the Lord came on. I was like, I don't know what this is. I know my parents aren't religious, so I'm not going to pay any attention. So I raised over all these tapes. It turns out, about 10 years after that, my mum was like, if you've seen the documentary Beware of Mr. Baker, Beware of Mr. Baker, it kind of explained that I was on the street. We had no money. We got evicted from our house. So my mom was like, I know how we can get some money and, and help us out a little bit. And I'm like, how? She goes, in the attic, there's the quarter-inch master mix-downs of Blind Faith. So they go from the two-inch tape, and they master it down onto quarter-inch, right? Uh, which is, you know, quarter-inch tape. And that's the reel-to-reel I found in the, in the attic, and now sort of taped, taped over. raised over. So they weren't worth any money after that. You kiddies out there, don't erase over any good tapes. <laughs> yes, that is, uh, that's good advice. <laughs> uh, so what was your question? Sorry. Uh, we answered it. So favorite Blind Faith oh, song right. and then favorite uh, Cream song. So I suppose my favorite Cream song would be, because Blind Faith would be Do What You Like, although I like all of them. My favorite Cream song? Wow, that's a hard one. I mean, I really like Deserted Cities of the Heart. 
I don't know if that's not so much of a well-known one. Uh, no, that's it's a bit of a deep cut. Um, yeah, it's a deep cut. I like the deep cuts. I mean, White Room is great. Sunshine is great. But they're very commercial. Um, you know, I Feel Free, I think, was one of the biggest hits, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so, it's yeah. It's a very, very simple song to play. Um, I grew up playing jazz and fusion. My dad made me play jazz because he was a jazz drummer. So he made me start in the jazz stuff. So I was more into the, the jazz kind of thing. I joined fusion bands. I did an album with um, Jonas Helborg and Sean Lane. You probably don't know who they are. I've heard of Sean Lane, yeah. Okay. Um, so Jonas Helborg was a bass player for the Mount Vishnu Orchestra. And Sean Lane was just famous for, I don't know, Black Oak, Arkansas or something or something. Some, somewhere on that line, yeah. And that was really hardcore fusion. You could, it was called Abstract Logic. It's now out there called Abstract Logic. And it's really hardcore fusion. Um, so that's what I grew up playing. I was like 20. I was like your age. Hey, 24, right. 25 when I was doing that. <laughs> so I was really young. <laughs> yes. Um, which is great to be young. Um, not anymore for me, but anyway. So, um, so yeah. So, I mean, the simpler tunes for me to play on the cream stuff are not so much fun. I like playing the more deeper cuts, the more jammy cuts and stuff, um, where the improvisation, because people ask me all the time, do you play original music? And I'm like, I've had original music. Yes, I've got albums out and everything. But the last 10 minutes of what we just played was original. We just made it up. Because we do, we do a song that's like five minutes long, and we'll make it 15 minutes long and do a whole bunch of improvisation in the middle, which is all completely made up on the spot. So like with, the, with the improv, um, like how does it... Like do you have any, any kind of sort of feeling or idea of what you're going to play? Or is it just like, this None. is how I'm feeling in the moment? Yeah, it's all basically, there's three of you, which is a great thing about a three-piece band. If you have a four-piece or a five-piece band, it's harder to jam because you've got more people, you know, more things going on. With a three-piece, it's pretty much perfect. You've got the drums, the bass, and the guitars. You've got the, the high end. You've got the, the mediator between the rhythm and the, the music and the drums. So... When you're improvisation, you're basically, you come from the song, you, you go into the chord that you're jamming, and hopefully you're playing with good musicians, and they have a lot of, uh, um, a lot of stuff to pull from, a big rep uh, repertoire. What's the word? I can't even say what's the word. <laughs> repertoire. That's the word to pull hey. from. So, um, you know, when you get old, you lose your vocabulary. You know, when you're young, you've got all your vocabulary. I still got it sometimes. <laughs> yeah. even, even me, I mess up words all the time. So, yeah. So then you just, yeah, you just go for it. And you follow, like, whoever's playing the most exciting thing, you back them. And then if you play something exciting, they back you. And that's, you, just, you just move around. And hopefully you move back to the song to go back into the song to end it. Sometimes... In our jams, we go so far out. The guitar player, maybe we end up bringing in a different song that we end up going into. So we go into that song. So sometimes the jam, we don't even finish the song we started. We go into some other song and finish that song. <laughs> so what's kind of the odds of like uh, finishing the song or then just going into another one? What's kind of the, like, what's kind of the percentage of like actually finish a song versus just... Go, you're so far out, you it's, just have to start a new one. 50-50. Okay. Because I'm just talking, I'm thinking about our last gig, and yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> we didn't end a lot of songs. Because we have endings for the songs, but sometimes we don't get to them. Because, so, you know, we go off somewhere else, and we end up in a different song. It's like, okay, well, there you go. But the great thing about that is if you come to one of our shows, and then you come to a, a show the next day, it's a different show. I mean, it, it's the same songs in certain places. Sometimes we change the songs, but, but the songs are played differently every night. 
and which my dad with Cream, Cream used to do. If you went to see Cream live from one night to the other, it was a different show because that's how Cream worked. And that's how I, my dad kind of taught me. So I worked the same way. No, it, it, is, it is very cool. Like if, it's a different experience for everyone, even if they've seen like your band before or Cream before, that they have a different experience every show. Right. And I mean, it's, it's cool. Like I know, you know, um, I'm, al- I'm always a fan of that or like at least change the set list enough that like if someone does come back, even on the same tour, that it, you know, that it, it is a different experience. Right. I mean, I think the Grateful Dead were kind of like that too. I think I, they played the same songs, but they go into jams that were pretty much out there. And, and Cream was the first jam band. It was right, what, 66? It was like one of the first jam bands out there. And it was probably the first heavy jam band. Yeah, it was, yeah, at least the, the, like the rock or at least um, that kind of style, yeah. Right. So, you know. Cause it, I mean, blue, like blues is like, I know I've listened to a lot of blues and they do a lot of improv stuff, but, but that's, in, again, in the blues category. Right. Well, blues is normally a little bit more simpler. But, yeah. Um, you know. A little bit more the, mellow, yeah. Yeah. Than the, I mean, like uh, Steve Ray Vaughan was probably like one of the biggest blues guys, right? And his guitar playing was great, but the rhythm section were pretty damn simple. They didn't really get to do a lot. They yeah, just backed Steve Ray Vaughan. Um, but I, I am curious because I know we're, wow, we're about 25 minutes into this interview already. I know we've, well, it, it has not felt like that, at least for me. I hope not for you either. Um, so I, I'm curious. So I know we were talking a little bit before this interview um, about, uh, about growing up that you're, oh, you know, right. uh, if you don't mind, we, yes. you don't mind going into that section. Yeah. You know, your father is, you know, Ginger Baker, as we've established um, in my intro. Um, so how was it like, yeah, also, Animal from the Muppets was modeled from my dad. Really? That gives you an idea of how crazy the stories are going to come out for me growing up. Okay, I didn't, I definitely, I, no, I didn't know okay, that. Well, think about it. It makes sense, though. Like, it, like, yeah, it clicked hair, in my head, yeah. Two kick drums. Yeah. Flat drums. It was my dad. That makes so much sense now. Yeah. Like, I grew up watching the Muppets, so, like, now you say that, I'm like, that makes sense. <laughs> From what my mum told me, they even asked permission. They even said they were going to do it when they were doing it. Um, that, that he was the he was the inf- you know the inspi- inspiration. I can't even talk. The inspiration <laughs> for Animal from the Muppets. Wow. So yeah, so my upbringing as a kid was pretty interesting. I mean, I was telling you earlier about the uh, story I wanted yeah. to say, and I saved it for this because I didn't want to say- do the whole story. So. I'm in Italy. I'm um, barely 15. I'm like just turned 15 years old. I'm in Italy. And um, my dad took me to a, his friend's house where they were getting really stoned. A lot of my childhood is drugs. I, I was given my first joint when I was five, cocaine when I was 15. So my dad was a drug, you know, did a lot of drugs. Um, so we were getting really stoned. I was 15 doing these things called glasses, which is where you put a piece of hash on a safety pin. And you put a glass over it. You light the hash, and the hash start. You blow it out, so it's it's burning. Put a glass over the glass, fills of pot of smoke, and you and you put the glass back down again. And you all take turns. Now you get really high when you're doing that. So I'm 15 years old, obliterated out of my head, and we're in Italy, in the middle of nowhere in Italy, in a big tank carrier. That was my dad's car. It was an old World War II tank carrier. He called Aggie flagship. And it had it was a it was it was a mong it was a mongol of bits from the war that they put the put it back together again. It'd been blown up, and you could tell, and put back together again. 
Anyway, so he had all these jerry cans, which are gas cans, you know, with yeah. gas in them. So um, he runs out. We run out of gas on the way back from the friend's house to his house, which is, again, in the middle of nowhere. So there's no lights. There's no street lights. We're on, like, little roads in Italy, like farm, farm roads. So he goes to me. He goes, get in the back of this truck. Now, you know the old army trucks with the tent things around them? You yeah, know, yeah, like yeah. It's a truck, and it's like a green kind of canopy. So that's what it was. So he's like, get it. Go in there. Find me the jerry can of gas. So I'm in the back, stoned down my head, couldn't see a thing, falling over everywhere. My dad shouted. My dad had no patience, right? If, if, you, see, if he said, go and get the jerry can, you better go get the jerry can and be back before he's even finished his sentence or he would be mad. So he's mad at me already because I can't find a jerry can. Anyway, I finally get the jerry can, come out, right? I go, here's the jerry can. He goes, okay, I need to roll up a piece of paper through a funnel. Right, so he rolls up this piece of card. Hold this. So I'm holding the funnel. He puts it in the, the spout for the gas tank, and I'm realizing that he's smoking a cigarette. Oh, while pouring gasoline. Well, he's got the, this is before even happened. He's got a cigarette in his mouth, and I'm like, well, he's gonna put the cigarette out, right? I mean, no. He opens the jerry can, starts pouring gas. Now, if anybody knows anything about gas, it's not the gas that catches fire. It's the fumes. It's the fumes. So I'm thinking. There's fumes everywhere, and I'm like standing there, and he's pouring gas on me. He's missing the funnel, and it's going down my arm. It's going on my trousers. I'm soaked in gasoline, and he's smoking a cigarette. And luckily, somehow, no explosions. But that was the shit I had to deal with as growing up. And I could I, this is just one of hundreds of stories I could tell you about my dad doing things where I'm like, I'm 15, and I'm like, this is not right. <laughs> this, is, this, should, this shouldn't be happening. You know? Um, but anyway, that was the story I wanted to tell you about the gasoline. I, I'm glad nothing bad happened, first off. Because everything was going wrong that should have happened, you know, like, that would cause, you know, a fire or explosion, and somehow it didn't. So well, I'm, I mean, glad, I'm glad about that. Well, I mean, again, while I'm in Italy, there's a thing called a stufa which is uh, it's a, basically a fire, a, a small fire stove that you could put a pot, a pot on. It's a wood-burning stove. It's a container where you can put a pot on it. It has a tube that goes through the house, and that's how you heat the house in Italy, those old-school houses. So he would have to light that every, every night for heat and cooking. And somehow, I don't know how he, he, he didn't blow himself to pieces, but he would get mad because it wouldn't light, and he would be pouring petrol, and it would be all over him or gasoline, as you could say in America. Yeah. It'd be all over him. So I leave the house. I'm like, I don't, I don't, don't want to be around this. And on the top of the house, where the tube goes, there's a little top to stop the rain getting in, right? A little thing on the top. And I leave the house. I'm like, this is getting bad. My dad's running around, more petrol, getting more cigarettes and smoking and getting more matches, throwing them at this thing. And I'm like, I get out of the house, right? Because I, I see bad shit happening here. So I get like a few feet away from the house and, Bang! This big explosion in the windows. And I look up and I see the, the top spout shoot up in the air, like off the thing, right? And I'm like, holy shit. And I'm about to walk in the house and my dad comes out with one eyebrow missing, half his beard gone, like right? some singed hair. And I'm like, that's great. I mean, but he didn't kill himself. No. I mean, somehow my dad. I mean, that was the only time he blew himself up. My dad has blown himself up so many times, and I don't know how 
he never died. But he somehow he, he didn't. <laughs> he made it. He made it to die in the hospital at 80. So there you go. I'm just processing, you know, just that and just how he, you know, he would do, you know, do stuff like that and just be, still be okay. Yeah, I mean, and it would constant. I mean, just the times I was there, he would be, be running around with hands on fire or something like, you know, from doing something like that. So I don't know how he got through life, really, honestly. I mean, there's stories that you can see of him, like there's a picture of him next to his Jensen FF, which he drove off a cliff, and a tree saved him. His Jensen FF's in a tree off a cliff, but the reason it's not down the cliff is because it hit a tree. And he's like, look, I don't know what I did. And a Jensen FF, there was only 250 made in the whole world. They were handmade British sports car, um, made by Jensen, four-wheel drive, you know, big engines. And there was only 250 made, and he put them into trees and all kinds of stuff. I mean, he wow. had two of them. Actually, we found out he had three of them because he had one parked at another woman's house. He had a whole other girlfriend and house that we didn't know about until we found out like 10 years ago. Yeah. Rock stars. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great way to sum it up. Did he crash that one to a tree or is that one untouched? Oh, no, I don't know about that. I know he crashed a white one in, into a... Into a tree and i think the gray one went into a crusher for the money Wait, what? insurance money when he had no when he lost all his money he put we put one into the crusher and told the insurance he got stolen or something oh okay i mean i'm sure they can't come back at him now he's dead sorry insurance company but i mean you know yeah it was a while ago <laughs> they probably insurance company's probably gone out of business by now anyway i should probably probably <laughs> With people like my dad doing things like that, I'm sure they probably did. Although I went into the back of an Aston Martin the day after I passed my driving test. Do you know what an Aston Martin is? Yeah, yeah Aston, I'm familiar, yeah. That's another expensive car, and I actually managed to go into the back of one the day after I passed my driving test. How'd how that I just... Well, I was trying to be like my dad. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, so, again, if you're driving your car in the summer, and it's being dry for a long time and then it starts raining yeah. the roads are very slippery the hydroplane i hydroplaned i saw the aston martin i hit my brakes and i hydroplaned i hydroplaned into his driveway i hit his car in his driveway i came off the road it was a curve and i just went straight into his driveway into the aston martin as he was pulling into his driveway i followed him in <laughs> <laughs> Oof, that's uh, that's expensive car to hit. Yeah, luckily um, I had insurance, so you know I'm sure they weren't happy with me. But you know that was probably a lot of money. I it definitely <laughs> for one of those cars, definitely, definitely. It's probably worth more now, but yeah. Yeah, I mean yeah. the Aston Martins. I don't know if they still make them. I, I think they do. Yeah, they do. very, very. I think it's a very uh, limited run right, each year, yeah. but I think they still do. A James Bond. Yeah, he still does. Oh, he does. They brought back the old one oh, in the okay. new movies. Yeah, right. the the red. I forget what year that was, but right. you know, yeah, the, one, the silver one. With yes, yeah, yes. With machine guns on the top. Yeah, right. Yeah, there you go. I don't, yeah. I don't think they normally have machine guns in them, but probably not. I mean, you probably could rig some. I don't recommend it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I recommend it with the way people drive. It would be kind of cool. Get all the bad drivers out of the road. You know. Honestly, one of my pet peeves is people not using turn signals. Oh well, I am turn signal Nancy. I mean, Nazi, Nazi, whatever you said. I grew up in London. Okay, we use our turn signals in Europe. 
If you go to Germany, the Autobahn, there's no speed limit because people know how to drive. Uh, they, everybody uses turn signals. Everybody's in that right lane. They use the left lane to pass. They use the far left lane to pass people passing, and then they come back to the right lane. And everybody's using their turn signals. So you come to America, and it's like... The turn signal is a suggestion. Yeah. I was like, what? why aren't people using their turn signals? And I actually... I'm a bike rider. So I ride up to a cop and go, hey, you don't use your turn signals when you turn, do you? And he goes, cop rolls down his window, electric windows, obviously, and goes, you don't have to use your turn signals unless you see it's going to affect someone. I'm like, so the accident happens when you, don't, when, you, when you see the person? The accident happens when you don't see the person. So your turn signals are there to, like, if you're on the freeway as an American, because this is an American podcast, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah, yeah. So if you're an American and you're driving in America and you're on the freeway and you see a car in front of you put their turn signal on to get into a lane. Now, in Europe, when you see a turn signal on, you're taught that you might be in their blind spot. So back off. In America, accelerate. If they've got their turn signal on, you accelerate. You get in, you get beside them. You stop them getting into the lane, which to me is like very dangerous. And that's probably why there's a lot of accidents, you know? It, yeah, no, no, I mean, you are, you are right. I, even on my way over here, um, if I see someone merging on, I slow down. Right. If I can't move over. Right. If I can move over, I maintain my speed. Where's the three-second rule here? Yes. So you follow the car, and they pass a marker. You go 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, and you pass the marker. Yep. But you can't do that in America because people will go around you and use that that area and it's like i've had people i've even put videos on facebook of because i drive with a camera i have a camera in my car a camera in my truck and on my bike i have a camera if you want to really see something horrific put in kofi baker and bike on youtube and watch the video of me getting nailed on my bike by a car but so you know i always videotape i always have a camera going because you know driving here is is I think actually you have to be a better driver in America because you have to keep an eye out for all the people that aren't paying attention. When I'm driving, my phone goes on the seat and I, I don't touch it. I, I don't either. Um, and unless it's like, an, like someone calls me, it's an absolute emergency. But other than that, like someone texts me, forget it. I, yeah. will, I will answer that when I get to my destination. Even if it's two hours, I'm driving two hours somewhere. <laughs> right. Sorry. I mean, the great thing about the cars of the day is your phone connects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can take calls and it doesn't really matter. I mean, I'm cool with that, but I don't have a new car. So my phone doesn't connect to my car. I don't either. Yeah, I don't have that either. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I stay. Sometimes I wear earbuds if I'm on a like a long, you know, like I just drove five and a half hours to Ohio. I'll put my earbuds in and, and you know, if it's a call, I just will chat while I'm driving. But I won't take my eyes off the road. I'm not, yeah. I'll never be looking at my phone while I'm driving because I just feel that it takes a short amount of time not paying attention that something bad can happen. Yeah. You know, I mean, literally just a few seconds. So all you young kiddies out there. Unless you've got a brand new car, put that phone down. <laughs> yes. I second that message. Oh, sorry. We went on a little bit of a tangent yeah, of driving. Music. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is a music podcast, but yeah, we're talking right. about driving. No, this is not a driving focus. <laughs> Maybe that, that'll be my next podcast. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll be on that one. Yeah. I'm willing with you on that one. <laughs>
All right, so um, I just I, I know it's a little bit of a longer podcast than I normally do, but I know we're having a really great conversation, and I really appreciate your time. Now I do I just got a few things I did want to cover. Okay, in just this one of those before we go back to something. Yeah, yeah, we could we go back to driving again. Now I've I've heard in previous interviews that you were um, you wanted to get your dad's uh, drum kit from Cream back for you could put it in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Has there been any updates with no, that? So so what happened was. The snare drum that my dad played from the beginning, we're talking before Cream, was a Leedy snare drum. Leedy is before Ludwig. So before Ludwig became, they were called Leedy, and I think Ludwig either bought Leedy or Leedy became Ludwig. But anyway, so it was a hand, wood-built snare drum. You know, it was really old. And that was his drum that he basically grew up playing, right? And... He stopped playing drums for a little bit in the early 70s. Well, I was born in 69. He stopped playing drums for like, he went to Africa and did all that African stuff and didn't really play drums. And he gave the snare drum to me. So I learned to play on this leady snare drum. It was the drum I learned to play on. And he got back into drums. And he, my dad, he, my mom used to say that you could live off just following my dad. Everything he lost and forgot about, you could live off it because he, he just forgot about it. He just put something down and forgot about it. So he forgot about the snare drum. And I was like, yeah, that snare drum is still playing. And my dad was like, you got my leady? And I go, yeah, that's what the, you gave it to me. He goes, I want that back. That's my leady drum. I'm like, well, okay, give me a snare drum. So he gave me his spare snare drum to the kit he was playing, which was his psychedelic kit, which is actually in the Hard Rock Cafe. There's, if you go to the Hard Rock Cafe, I think the Las Vegas one, if you see a Ginger Baker drum and it's like yellow and uh, yellow and orange 12 perspex that's the kit i had i had that whole kit he first he gave me the spare snare drum to that and the spare and the second bass drum because he went single bass drum for a little while for some reason he dropped the, the second bass drum so i had that bass drum and the spare snare and i gave him the leady snare drum back and my dad said to me when i was giving it back to him i said i, I love this drum he goes you'll get it when i die it'll be yours so I'm like, okay, I didn't really, I'm, you know, seven, eight years old. I didn't really compute that at all. But anyway, I'd forgotten about it. I, um, I was playing. So then when my dad died, um, I, well, before he died, he was in the hospital. The whole story, I'll try and shorten it a little bit. But um, I was, I, my dad married his fourth wife, Kutsi, this, um, uh, I think from Ghana, Africa, somewhere in Africa, anyway. And, um, he made a deal with her that, you know, you look after me. She was, she was like younger than me. She was like 40 years younger than him or something. She was like 35 or something, and my dad was 70. So it was more of a deal, you look after me, and I'll give you everything kind of thing. You know, a lot of these rock star rich people do. They don't care about, they just want to care about their life, and they just want to have a, you know, a young woman, you know, looking after them and, you know, go out and I've got a young girl, you know, I'm 70, look, I've got a 30-year-old, you know, woman. So it was more of that kind of thing. So I kind of, the last 10 years of his life, I kind of backed off from my dad because his wife didn't want anything to do with us. She had her own kid. And it, my relationship fell apart with my dad. I even did a Rolling Stone interview where I said, my dad is dead to me. And they put it up there. And it, it wasn't like he's dead to me. It was just dead to me at that time because I wasn't talking to him. So anyway, I called my dad up and I'm like, look, dad, we've got to put this all aside. You're really sick. You're 80 years old. You're really sick. I'm flying to London to play a, a tour. 
I'm doing a tour, playing the music of Cream. It's the music of Cream. So me and my dad agreed to meet at his sister's house, and we were going to, you know, just meet and you know put everything aside. He got really sick, like two weeks before that, two or three weeks before I was flying in, and my I got a call from my sister saying he's going to die. He's really sick. You better get over here. So I tried to get my flight changed. It was impossible. It was like five grand. And I'm like, please, Dad, hang on. And um, he started getting better. He had a, like, they said, okay, you're cool. Keep your flight. So I flew in, and uh, my dad was in hospital. And Eric had just visited him the day before. And he was, he was actually doing okay. He was upright. He was talking. And I had the best experience with my dad. It was just like he acknowledged me. We were, I was telling him I was playing Cree music, and he's like, that's great. And I said, I'm going to keep your legacy going. I'm going to keep it going, Dad. I'm going to, he was like, great, you know, you're the one to do it. And he was really behind me. And uh, I went out, and Kutsi, his wife, said, you know, your, your dad wanted you to have his drums. I'm like, yeah, I expected, you know, that's probably all I would get, knowing that, you know, he's blowing all his money. I would just like to have his drums, especially that leady snare drum. I'd just like to have that. And, you know, if I get it, I think it would go in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I wouldn't take any money for it. I just donated to them because there was nothing of my dad's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. She was all cool with it and everything. Then I went out on the road and my dad, I said, I'll be back in six days because I had to go up to Scotland and play and I'll be back in six days and I'll stay with you. He died the day before I was going to get back. So it was like, I'm on the road heading back and like, he's died. And I'm just like, unbelievable. I just had the most best experience with my dad. And he's gone, and I was just like devastated. I was like completely. I, was, I had to play a show that night, and I, I don't know how I was bawling my eyes out. Anyway, I talked to Kutsi, my dad's book, his Rolodex, with Rod Stewart's number, Stevie Wonder's number, um, Eric Clapton's number, uh, Steve Winwood, you know, Mick Jagger, everybody's phone numbers in this Rolodex. And I said to Kutsi, I said, that Rolodex needs to be burned or give it to me, and I'll put it aside or it just that shouldn't get into the hands of any agents or anything she goes you get nothing i've written you guys i'm like what's going on and she started being really nasty to me and i i said look she said i'm giving i keep the book it's my book it's not your book it's my book i keep the book and i'm like well, what are you talking about she goes i give it to ina i'm like ina's my dad's agent i'm like no the last thing that that book needs to go to an agent. Well, what we were just talking about early on in this conversation. Yeah. Anyway, so she gives it to Ina. So I'm talking to Eric, and I'm saying, look, yeah, you know, let's get this funeral. Eric was going to help with the funeral. Stevie Wonder, I mean, Stevie Winwood was going to go. Charlie Watts, Rolling Stones, you know, all these people were going to come to the funeral. I get a call from Eric going, "Who's this Ina person?" I'm like, "Oh no." He goes, "I got a call from Ina. She's called." Everybody, Charlie Watts, she's called it. We're all, sorry, we're all backing out. We don't want anything to do with this Ina person. She's, she's doing the funeral. They're, they're trying to get all these famous people involved. To, we're out. So I was like, well, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's messed up. So I call up Kutsi and I go, what's going on? She goes, I gave the book to Ina. She's going to handle the funeral. I go, I thought my dad's sister was going to handle the funeral. It's just my dad's sister. You know, that's the who should be handling the funeral. You don't know anything about funeral. You're from another country. You don't know how it works. I don't know how it works. I give it to Ina. She does it all. I'm like, no, no, no. I do not trust agents. Agents are bad. I don't trust agents. Hang up the phone. 
Next thing, I get an email from Kutsi. You don't trust Asians. I am, I am black. If you don't trust Asians, you're a racist. You're a racist person. I don't want to speak to you anymore. You're a piece of shit. I write you out the wheel. You get nothing. You get no drums. You get nothing. I'm like, agent. Agent, not Asian. How are you confusing those two? We're talking about my dad's agent. I'm not saying my dad's Asian. So anyway, so that's what happened. And I talked to Kutsi after that. I said, please. I've been in contact with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I told him I was going to give him the snare drum. And now I don't have the snare drum to give him because I thought I was going to get it. So I gave him the spare snare that my dad gave me. I go, this is all I've got to give you. I'm sorry, it's my dad's spare snare. It looks great. But, and so that's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame right now. It's a spare snare. And I gave them that and I said, okay, that's the best I can do. If I can ever get that drum. So I called Kutsi again, I email. She sent me this email. Your dad never loved you. He hated you. He wanted to get rid of you. He never loved you ever. You, you were a piece of shit. You're not sorry for the words. Uh, she was just like, unbelievable. And I was like, what the hell happened? And it's been like that since it's been, how long since my dad died? Four years, five years? And Kutsi is just. Still the same. So. Yeah, same. She won't give me the drums. She won't give me anything. She's tried to cut us out of the will as best she can. I've got, my sister's got emails. With her saying, I cut you out the will. I, I've got power of attorney over Ginger Baker. I'm, I am now his, I, I do everything. You are nothing. He doesn't like his family. He never liked your family. And it's like, I've got videos of me and my dad. We got along great until Kutsi got into the picture. I mean, we didn't get along great, but we, 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 he disowned me. I disowned him and we got back together. You know, normal father-son, you know, stuff that can happen. You know, a little bit extreme because it's my dad. But... You know, we, it was never really meant, you know, I love my dad. I know my dad loved me. We did drum duets together. We had some, we, you know, I know the truth. I know that it's not real. I don't know why she's doing this. And I'm baffled. But, but that's so, I can't seem to get hold of that drum. Um, and I don't know where it is. And I don't know where, who's going to get it. I don't know where it's going to go. She, even when the executives had to, do something with they have to find out all the stuff to for the will they the kit wasn't there she said the drums are not here and they she hid them so i don't know what's happening with any of that stuff i don't know where it's gone there's another guy uh my dad's abbas the guy who was playing with my dad at the last thing he's in with kutsi so they're probably working together to try and sell the drums privately so if the drums ever come up privately or anything let me know and if you do buy the drums Remember, you're buying them illegally. They're not part of the will. They're not part of my dad's estate. They were hidden. So there's no documentation. The estates say those drums should be in the control of the estate, which me and my sisters have some help in. We can, you know, we're in, in the family. So if you're buying those drums, you're buying them illegally. And if you do buy them illegally, please donate them to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That's all I ask. I think you said it very well, so I, I, I don't have too much more to add. But yes, if anyone does see, see them, you know, either or purchase them, please let them know. Like, it, it would be, be really cool to have them in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Plus, it, it, you're buying them illegally. So yeah. don't yes. do that. <laughs> don't do that. Yeah. Okay. I, no, I, I was just curious if you heard any updates about that because I heard in a previous interview from last year right. you talking about it. So I was just curious if there was any updates about it. I, I hope they're still in good condition they're still they're still around is what well, i hope i'm sure they're probably somewhere in a hidden in a place somewhere 
I mean, I don't know. That's what I'm saying. I don't know how you could sell them. The only way you could sell them is on the black market. So I presume, yeah. so, you know, I presume if they show up somewhere, then that's what happens. She sold them. But I'm hoping at some stage that she comes to terms with the fact that they should go in a rock hall. Even if she donates them to the Rocker Hall of Fame, I'd yeah. be good with it. You know? Yeah, but... That should be their destination. That now. should be their destination. Yeah. Very well said with everything, and I, I hope they do turn up, and I hope I do hope that they make it to the Hall of Fame. And if they do it, because Super Cool Radio put it out there. That's right. That is right. Hundred percent. I I am investigative journalist at, at times, so right. I'm 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 hoping this does reach Super at least cool somebody. Radio will find the drums. <laughs> yes, or at least we're, we're going to try. We're going to try. Right. I just have like. About two more things I did want to cover okay. in this interview. And we've covered so much, you know, music and even non-music related. Right. I've, I've had a really great time chatting with you. Um, have you thought about your legacy, Kofi Baker's legacy, and what, well, what you want it to be? My legacy is, is pretty uh, a lot of fusion. I mean, I'm just releasing my own album in the next couple of months. One I wrote with my cousin on my dad's side. So my dad's uh, sister's daughter's kid. So I don't know what that, how cousin that is. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah I get mixed up on the family tree yeah, stuff. It's, yeah, it's like a cousin, second cousin or something. Anyway, so he's a musician. He's a younger guy. He's like 29, a little bit older than you. Yeah. Um, so he's a musician and he, he's a really good writer and a great, great musician. And I somehow like i was like wow we should do something together and we started writing music together and it started coming out really good um a lot of it recorded here on my drum kit um and um and it was all recorded here on my drum kit because he's in england and i'm here so it was recorded you know back and forth so we wrote this album and it's all original and it's kind of like a cross between fish pink floyd kind of early pink floyd Kind of that stuff. sounds like, that sounds trippy. So it's it's a very trippy album. It's really trippy. We even put lots of segues between the songs, trippy segues. So the song, so it's like one long song, and it's going to be released on vinyl too. So it'll be cut in half, but but it's still that's going to be released in a couple of a uh, couple of months. We're just getting the finishing the mixes and stuff on it. That's kind of my legacy is a lot of of I'm into really trippy music. So it'll be hopefully my my music legacy will be all the trippy trippy stuff like that and again you know a lot of my albums have been fusion the jonas helborg abstract logic album i did when i was 25 there's chris poland's own megadeth chris poland from megadeth yeah yeah yeah. Right. i did three albums with him and amino acid flashback i co-wrote that album okay so i'm a workout guy drinking amino fuel and the, the album's called amino acid flashback so you can tell where the title came from. I used to guzzle Mino fuel when I was a bigger guy. I was bigger back then, you know. I was like 195 pounds, pushing a lot of weight. Now I'm a skinny old guy, but um, I still work out. There's some gym stuff here. You probably can't see it, but there's a whole bunch of gym here. Um, yeah, we're in his gym slash studio. Yes. You see the studio part is behind us. <laughs> so my legacy would probably be more in the jazz fusion thing, except for this album that's coming out. It might might be a hit because it's it's like it's a vocal album. It's the first album I've done where it's all vocals. It's not one instrumental song. It's all a uh, very song orientated, and it's 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 in the kind of commercial, but not. So I think that might end up being my uh, whose vocals are on it. Who, um... uh, Rob Johnson. So okay. Rob Johnson's my cousin. 
So it's Rob Johnson and Kofi Baker. And I was thinking you should call the album like Big Johnson or something. <laughs> <laughs> Will it be called then? <laughs> well, like, you know, or Baked Johnson, you know, like Baker uh, part, you know. You know. Is there an album title in the works, or you still it still currently doesn't have there's one? No, there's no title. We were just going to release it under Rob Johnson, Kofi Baker. But I was thinking, you know, um, you know, I was thinking of something funny because I'm always thinking of stupid. Stuff. I like Bake Johnson. That's good. Yeah, Bake Johnson was okay, you know. Uh, but you know, so yeah, I haven't really thought about my legacy because I'm not, you know, that old yet. Those I am kind of. But you know, but again, my legacy. If you if you go back and look at my past, it's pretty much fusion and jazz so it's not really in the mainstream so i'm starting to get more into the mainstream now and really playing my dad's keeping my dad's legacy going seems to be important because cream and blind cream was a very inf you know it's what's the word influential influential yes that's the word you know on music so cream you know a lot of like neil pert you know rush all oh, these yeah. people cream was like you know, they, you know, they kind of took from that. So, um, so I want to keep that. That's kind of become my focus since my dad died. And I said to my dad, right before we, the last words I had to my dad was, I'm keeping your legacy going. I'm going to keep your name out there. So I kind of feel now, since my dad's gone, it's kind of my duty to keep it going, even though I do have my original music and my original stuff. It's, 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 you know, it's kind of all my shows are pretty much, I don't really play my original music, which I'm going to try and do. You know, I'm, once this album's released, I might try and throw original songs in with the cream, but you know, they're more on, like I said, they're a little bit more trippy than cream. They're more on that Pink Floyd, early Pink Floyd kind of, kind of thing. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to hearing that music because I'm curious how, how trippy you guys, you know, you guys are going to be with that. I'm, it's very trippy. I, I, I'm excited. I'm excited to check it out. Your legacy is very, you know, intertwined with a lot of different things. I've worked with a lot of uh, cool acts. Um, you know, um, Steve. Ma I was Steve Marriott's last drummer before he died. I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, I toured with him right before he died, and he was. I was going to do the album with Frampton, uh, Peter Frampton. Yeah, yeah, I'm familiar. Actually, yeah. So Peter Frampton and Steve Marriott were together in a band as well. I didn't, so, I, I didn't I know that. It's but... small faces. I'm not sure. Okay. But, but um, I'd have to look that up. But yeah, I was going to do the album with Frampton and I didn't end up doing it because Steve died and it, it, didn't, it didn't quite happen. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, Roger, Wa I played, Roger Water played Cowbell on a, when I was playing drums. I've got Roger Waters on Cowbell. That's cool. <laughs> when we That's cool, yeah. The last uh, song I played with Clapton was Crossroads. And everybody came up on stage. So I was playing with, with, with um, Roger Waters on Cowbell. You know, Ronnie Wood was playing. Stevie Wynn was playing. Everybody was playing. Even Steve Gadd. If you're a drummer, you probably know who Steve Gadd is. And to play alongside Steve Gadd was, was really a beautiful experience for me. It was almost, it was kind of the same of playing along with my dad. Because my dad had this great feel when he played. And it was so warm and beautiful. And you felt when you played alongside him, you just felt comfortable. And Steve Gadd had that same thing. When you played alongside him, you just felt relaxed and comfortable. So that's a cool thing. No, it def that definitely is. To, to have that kind of similar like, vibe. Steve Gadd's a very famous drummer. You probably don't know. I'm not, from, unfortunately, no, I'm not familiar. Okay, he's, he's most famous for 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. Oh, okay. He's the drummer on that. Okay, then yes. So, yeah, I mean, 
And he's, he's a very famous drummer. He's on, he's on probably so many. He's Clapton's drummer for the last 10 years as well. Okay. And, you know. and I've, I've definitely have heard music by him. Or like, yeah, you know, you've, or... You've, 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 if you turn on the radio with an old song, you've probably heard Gad playing drums at some point. <laughs> he's with, um, I think he was with, uh, uh, what's the um, band that did uh, Asia? Um, oh. Stevie, Stevie Dan. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Steely Dan. So he's on the Steely Dan records. Okay, then yeah, I've definitely, I've definitely heard his, yeah, his drumming. Yeah, Asia. Asia, that, that okay. famous Steely Dan drum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it, that's Gad on drums. And he actually does a solo in it. Okay. So you can hear Gad actually doing his thing. So. Now I'm going to listen more closely now, because I know I've heard the song before, but I didn't, yeah. you know. Yeah, listen to the drums, because the drums are incredible on that song. I mean, that's, that's like, that's Gad at his, 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 you know, at his best, I think. So anyway. No, that's a very, very, a very cool moment for sure for you. Um, now I know. Um, well, I don't. I really don't. Don't got too much more because I know we're about at the. I think we're about at the hour mark. So, okay. All right. so just a few more. Uh, w- one more thing, and then we wrapping this up. Okay. Um, we talk about turn signals. Yes. <laughs> Which, by the way, use them. <laughs> yes, do. Or I'll come after you. <laughs> yeah, you don't want him after you. <laughs> Um, you kind of already touched, uh, you know, you have a new album coming out in the next couple months, but like, what's kind of the rest of the plan for uh, the rest of this year, 2023 and into early 2024? Okay, so um, September, I go back out on the road with my music of uh, Cream and Blind Faith, Cream Faith. Um, and uh, that starts in September 27th, I believe, in Arizona. And we played a coach house in California on the 28th, and we go up into Colorado. Uh, and then, so that's the tour I've got for the end of the year. Um, and then I'm actually going to be doing Europe early next year, uh, Holland, Germany, and England, um, touring there, I think in March of 2024. And then hopefully if I can get it together, Malcolm Bruce, Jack Bruce's son is going to come back to America and we're going to do an American tour in the summer of next year. Me and him playing the music of our fathers, it would be. That sounds amazing. So, yeah, and he's a great musician, and he's a mind-blowing singer. He sounds like Jack. He sings like Jack. He plays like Jack, and he can, he's just he's great. So that'd be worth seeing. I de- de- definitely. I want to see that tour. Um, so hopefully I get I'll chance. get you on the guest list for hey, sure. I'm in. I'm I'll in. I'll wearing my super cool radio hat. Hey, I will be too. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be managing like we are right yes, now. Right. I just don't have the super. But I have the. The Cream Faith shirts. Yeah, yeah, we, we have, we're representing our, uh, our brands right here. And I do sell these on the road, so uh, you can buy these nice red, you know, I didn't want to get black shirts. I thought, you know, everybody gets black shirts. I, yeah, well, as for someone wearing a black shirt, I, I, uh, I have blue and purple, too. That's what... You got purple? Yeah, I got oh, purple. Yeah. I'll have to snag a purple shirt off you, I, that's my favorite color. I kind of wish I would have brought them with me, right. but, uh, but yeah, I know purple's my favorite color, well, I'm too. I'm going to make a purple one next. Ooh, that so would... Maybe we'll swap a shirt. Yes. Yeah, 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 you get the purple ones in, I'll give you one of my uh, right. purple shirts. All right. Cool. All right, we got a deal. All right. <laughs> so uh, last thing, uh, if anyone's interested, where are the best places to find Kofi Baker online? KofiBaker.com. K-O-F-I-B-A-K-E-R.com. That was simple. I like it. I mean, it's my girlfriend's updating the site. It's, we're updating it at the moment. We're getting more videos up there because... Unfortunately, a lot of my videos are all YouTube phone videos, and I'm trying to get those down because, you know, um, the quality the yeah. quality's really bad. You can't hear the drums. And sometimes 
in the past, I've just I've had sub players play that aren't that great, and people have videoed it and put it on YouTube. And it's like really uh, not a good representation. Not a yeah, good reputation. So you really, if you want to see me playing or you want to see a video, make sure it's a video that I've okayed or it's on my website or something like that. Because otherwise, if you're just searching YouTube. You're probably finding, you know, a band that I played with or they called themselves this or I had a sub guitar player and those videos get up there and you're like, oh, really? You know, that's not that great. So, yeah, no, or, or even better, see them live. See me live because <laughs> live is the best. You've got to support your musicians because we, we don't make any money from record sales anymore. We make our money from touring and merch. This is how we make our money nowadays. We go on the road and we play our music. And really and truly, live music is the way to go see a band because you're seeing the band playing the stuff right there and you're seeing what they can do. And also, it stops all these people that can't play music. You know, the real people that can play music, that's what you want to go see. I know, like, if you go see Britney Spears or Christina Aguilera or, or what's the name, uh, Taylor Swift, yeah. you're seeing a dance act with backing tracks. You might think the band's playing, but they're playing to backing tracks. So you're really not seeing a band play. If you really want to see a band play, go see a band where you see them plugged into their amplifiers. You don't see, and they're not, if they're dancing around the stage, they're not singing. Or if they, Mick Jagger gets away with it, but he doesn't really sing that. Sorry, Mick. You're great, but, but you're not really having to hit all those notes that these pop singers have to hit all the you see, Mick, you sound great. Sorry, but I'll bad represent. But you dance around and you can tell he's out of breath. But the thing is, is, you know, if you're going to watch someone and they're... Today's music, unfortunately, to me, the reason they have to have so much visual is because it's not that exciting for your ears. In the old days, people used to go to, you know, go to clubs, get stoned and close their eyes. They didn't need any visual stimulation because the music was so good. And that's what I do. I, I play now. Okay, past videos, I've had some ranked players. But now, I only play with top players. And you can close your eyes. You don't need any visual stimulation. You don't want to look at me anyway. And, and the music will be good and we'll be playing cool shit. And I think that uh, a ticket to see him live won't be $25,000. No, hopefully not. Maybe twenty four. <laughs> yeah, only 24000 to see him. Not like Taylor Swift. No, I, like playing, I like playing smaller clubs two or three nights in a row rather than playing a big club once because you get more audience reaction and you, get more, you can interact with people. And I like, after my show, talking to people. I like people coming up and I can talk to them and stuff. I don't like being whisked off to this and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, come to a live show and nine times out of ten, you'll be able to talk to me. You know, um, and again, Support live music, support any live band, because like, this is how we're surviving. We're surviving from our gig money and our merch. That's how musicians survive. It's, yeah, especially nowadays. And also, yes, support live music, support musicians, and also support the, the live local clubs, the smaller clubs, because unfortunately, I, I know from my experience, Many of them in my area had to close down. Yeah. So anyone that are still around, please support them. Go, go see live music. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to see, like I said, a Christina Aguilera or something like that, these people didn't get affected by the pandemic. The Eric Claptons and stuff didn't really get And if they did, they didn't care. They got so much money. It's the small clubs 
and the small bands that got all of the low end, middle end range of musicians got the pandemic messed us up big time. Um, and we lost a lot of money. People lost their houses. People lost, people lost a lot of stuff from that. So oh. those are the people you need to support. You need to support the, the local musicians and your local clubs. Support them. And don't go to the arenas. The arenas, all that ticket sales, Ticketmaster and stuff like that, they're, they're not good people. Sorry, Ticketmaster, but you're ripping people off and you're charging them way too much money and your credit card. And, you know, I would bypass that and go to the smaller clubs and the real, real stuff. Yes, I agree. No, for, for sure. Because uh, I know, and unfortunately, I know a lot of a few musicians who had to like just switch careers that they gave up music during yeah. the pandemic to just to survive. They took another job. And so, no, it, it affected, as we talked about earlier, you know, the busing industry, the musicians, the local small venues, not the, you know, not the huge, like, you know, Ticketmaster, huge arenas like that, but like the local clubs, as I said, many had to close down. Like, it affected so many people on, on right. the, the, the mid to low level. Yeah, the bus companies, the tour order people, the clubs, the, the people that work in the clubs, the waitresses, yeah, the bartenders, yep. bartenders, all those people got, they had to find other jobs and had to find bus companies closed. I turned to recording sessions online. I started doing that all through 20, you know, for the pandemic. I just yeah. did session work for people. I, I, they'd send me the tracks. I'd play them and pay, they'd pay me. So that's how I kind of stayed afloat. But it's not as much fun. I didn't make much videos because I, didn't, I, I don't feel playing in front of a camera is that exciting. I need people. You need the energy. Yeah, I need people to play in front of. Otherwise, I'm like, I just don't. I, you know, I play, but it just, you know. It feels hollow. Yeah, it feels hollow. I need you guys to come to the show and scream. Yes. So make sure to see him live. He's coming to Area New Year's. Make sure to see him live. Hang out. Talk to him. KofiBaker.com. That's where you'll find out where I'm playing. I'll leave that website link in the description of this podcast. Please check out and support Kofi Baker. Thank you so much for chatting with me. We had a great conversation. Yes. We went a lot of different places yeah. here. But it was so much fun. And next time we'll talk about roundabouts in America. <laughs> because I don't know why America's put them in. I mean, your stop signs, I'm telling you, stop signs are a great idea. Because when a traffic light goes out, yeah. you drop the you have stop. stop. Yeah. In England, we don't have stop signs. So traffic lights go out, it's mayhem. But we have roundabouts. Now, roundabouts, you have to use your turn signals. Otherwise, they don't work. <laughs> you have to let people know you're exiting so that they can drive on without having to stop. Yeah. Or, or without hitting you. Right. So if you're driving around about, use your turn signals. And we'll talk in depth about this on the next, next, next podcast. Yes. The only roundabout talk oh, only. Yeah, we're going to have a roundabout podcast. A roundabout. <laughs> yes. A roundabout, roundabout podcast. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> well, that'll be for next time. But right now, Kofi Baker, thank you so All much right. for hanging out with me. Thank you. I had such a great time chatting with you. For Kofi Baker, I'm your host as always, Matthew Thomas. Thank you so much for watching and listening to Super Cool Radio. And remember, stay frosty.